waves following wind because wind doesn't always go the same direction as waves. Um, and the waves are large enough. You cruise and you surf down the front of waves and you can get up to pretty fast speeds. You can also go incredibly slow. So you kind of just turn off anything that shows you how fast you're going and row. This is the Adventure Sports Podcast, brought to you by 180TAC. Get out there and have some fun. Episode 101, Sonia Baumstein, Ocean Rowing, and a Bunch of Other Adventures. Hi friends, and welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast. I'm excited to share with you our special guest today, Sonia Baumstein, who has an amazing uh, interview about what it's like to row across oceans. She rowed across the Atlantic. She started a rowing venture across the Pacific. She has also paddled from Seattle all the way up to Juneau, Alaska. She's done a lot of other amazing feats, and it's an amazing podcast. But before we go there, I wanted to update you on a previous guest, Lonnie Dupree. Lonnie was on our show, oh, a few months back, and he is off on another amazing adventure. He sent a press release out, so I'm just going to share this. A lot of great information. Explorer launches mission in the Himalayas. Polar explorer and mountaineer Lonnie Dupree has arrived in Nepal with a team of volunteers and high-altitude climbers. Nepal is one of the poorest countries on earth, yet rich in diverse cultures. The economic livelihood of the Nepalese often depends on tourism and the climbing industry, which have been severely damaged from a devastating earthquake on April 25th, 2015. Hundreds of aftershocks in landslides. You may have heard about this one. A lot of climbers died at the Everest Base Camp when avalanches triggered by the earthquake came down on the base camp. It was a pretty tough thing. A lot of villages are suffering, and Nepal um, was pretty hard hit. This project, called Vertical Nepal, is conducting a multi-phase mission of humanitarian relief work, scientific data collection, and a significant mountaineering expedition. The Vertical Nepal team will work to help restore a remote mountain community affected by recent earthquakes. We'll visit schools and hospitals in the area in order to assess the recovery needs, in addition to teaching mountaineering safety to the local inhabitants. Later on in the mission, the team will volunteer at a school for visually impaired, provide data on snow leopard activity that they have accumulated during their travels, and will initiate the collection of high-altitude snow and rock samples for scientific studies on climate change. Science and humanitarian programs will be implemented throughout both expeditions. For more information about the team's objectives, go to oneworldendeavors.com. Vertical Nepal is proud to be partnered with the following humanitarian and environmental organizations. The Rose International Fund for Children, Himalayan Healthcare, Snow Leopard Conservancy, Adventurers, and Scientists for Conservation. The government of Nepal has recently opened several new areas containing a number of unclimbed 7,000-plus meter peaks, one of which will be the focus of this expedition. Unlike Dupree's most recent expedition, where he completed the first solo summit of Denali in January, for this expedition, Dupree is teaming up 
with accomplished mountaineers Elias de Andre Martos from Spain and Bridget Schledy from the U.S. This first phase of Vertical Nepal will include initial exploration of several of these unclimbed 7,000-plus meter peaks. One will be chosen to climb next spring. A potential candidate is the 7,915-meter-high Tenzing Peak, named after Sherpa Tenzing Norgay, who, along with Sir Edmund Hillary, completed the first ascent of Mount Everest in 1953. Assessing Tenzing Peak will include establishing rope lines over extensive ice falls, and depending on accessibility, helicopters may be required to investigate alternative routes. After completing this reconnaissance, the team will attempt a climb of Amadablam, the 22,349-foot-high peak, as part of training for the main objective climb in the spring of 2016. I have to mention Amadablam. If you haven't seen that peak, you need to Google it and look at the pictures. It is beautiful, considered a, a sacred mountain by the Nepalese. Now, Vertical Nepal is largely supported by the following sponsors. Primaloft, here in America, and Granite Gear. Continued support sponsors are Spot, Personal Location, and Data Beacons, and Hilleberg Tent Making. Dupree, this goes on to say that he lives in Grand Marais, Minnesota. He was on our show, like I said, a few months back, and it's a, a really cool episode. You might want to go back in here. So, anyway, I wanted to share that so you would know that uh, Lonnie is up to additional crazy expeditions. And if you want to learn more information about that, then go to www.oneworldendeavors.com. So, now this podcast today with Sonia Baumstein is going to be a two part show. We're going to start with part one today, and the next show will be on the next episode. Sonia has a lot of amazing information to share about all kinds of adventures, not just ocean rowing. But one thing that I really like about this show is Sonia took the time to kind of let us in on the secret inside kind of psychology that goes on when adventurers attempt these great feats, kind of the battle on the inside, and it's a it's a rare peak into uh, what it takes, the guts that are necessary to attempt these adventures. So I think you really enjoy today's show. Today I have Sonia Baumstein with us. Sonia Baumstein is an amazing adventurer who has done a lot of expedition-length adventures, primarily oriented around water and usually salt water. She is an ocean rower. She likes stand-up paddleboarding. She's done long-distance biking as well. And I am really excited to visit with her today about all of her adventures. Sonia, welcome to the program. Thanks very much, Kurt. Sonia, fill in the gaps there. I mean, I just gave a couple of bullet points about <laughs> what you've done, but holy cow, you have done a lot. Who is Sonia, and and uh, what's your kind of adventure resume? Wow, that's a very involved question. Um, I am 30 years old now. I guess I'm over or getting near the hump, or maybe I'm at the hump. Um, and it's really interesting because a lot of people will see me and they'll, be, they'll say when I'm presenting about these expeditions, oh, so you're on your summer break from college. And I say, no, this is my life. <laughs> so that's <laughs> interesting part of um, being a 30-year-old woman doing this. 
And I mean, I've just always been around water. I grew up in Florida and I sailed when I was young. And then I turned to uh, the traditional kind of rowing that you'd think of in eights when I was in high school and college. And I got a master's and um, the master's led me to begin working in social services, which I did for a number of years. And I felt like something was kind of missing. And I had um, incidentally been in this accident that kind of robbed me of part of my rowing career during college, which for anybody that has or is a competitive athlete to go from, you know, functioning on a level 10 to functioning on a level two, it's um, a huge mental disparity. Um, so a friend of mine mentioned to me ocean rowing. And as soon as I heard and read about it, I was 100% committed. But I'm um, the kind of person that likes to engage more than one person, which is interesting because I'm also trying to do um, more solo expeditions at the same time. But so I'm struggling against this internal part of me that wants to create community and have a community around me on these expeditions because I were social organisms. So in this first iteration of my first expedition, which was um, the Atlantic Crossing, I wanted to have this small community of people and to spread the wealth of what this adventure would bring for a long period of time. And it turns out that when I got these people involved, they said, you know, rowing's not my primary. I want to do this. This is really interesting, but I also want to do this thing. And so this one expedition grew into what was to be four major expeditions we were going to do back to back. And it turns out that, um, I was the only one to complete in some form, um, three of them. And that breeds discussion about many more things, uh, like expectation levels and, um, sense of accomplishment and, what feels right and intuition and all of those things come into play when having that larger discussion. But it ends up that I um, rode across the Atlantic and then I biked the PCH uh, PCH from Mexico to from the Mexican border. I should specify from the Mexican border to Seattle. And then from there I got into a sea kayak and kayaked from Seattle up to Juneau, Alaska and kind of was completed that year because I was running up against winter and I haven't yet done any winter-related sports that um, I could have added on to the end of it. Uh, so then the year, the next year, uh, I paddleboarded the Bering Strait. And then that was kind of during a year of prep where 2000, the end of 2012, 13, 14, um, up to the beginning of 15, I was preparing for a greater expedition, the largest one I've ever undertaken, both financially and um, emotionally, probably, was going to be a solo row of the North Pacific Ocean, which is quite a bear. So that I was not able to complete successfully this time. And uh, the last two to three months have been very interesting for me to go back and evaluate personally because you go through a lot of different emotions when you feel like there's not a sense of completion after something. So, (laughs) but look what you did. (laughs) You paddled across the Atlantic, right? Um, You paddled from Seattle to Juneau, Alaska. You did the bike ride 
from Mexico to Seattle. You did the stand-up paddle boring of the Bering Strait. So, wow, your accomplishments are are way, way out there. I have to say, Sonia, we interview a lot of mountaineers on our program, and they all have a common theme, and that is that if you're going to be a great mountaineer, then you have to be willing to say, I'm not going to get the summit today and turn around. And they say that the greatest climbers are the ones who have been turned around the most often. Yeah, and it's nice to hear stories about it as another person to just share that group think because the first time it happens, it's really scary um, because there's usually a lot of stake in it. It's not just your own personal emotional stake, but it's your family who supported you doing this, your friends. It's um, time that you've put into this thing. And for some of us, it's also supportive sponsors and media that plays in. And there's just all of these things. It's not as simple as I don't feel right anymore. Um, so it is really nice to talk to other adventurers about situations they've been in. Um, there's one gentleman who was, I'm trying to remember, who's the guy that jumped out of, who did the highest um, jump from space? What is his name? <laughs> Let me look it up. It's like Hans or something. I don't know. Let me see here. Highest skydive. Yeah, there's Alan Eustace, and there's also another guy, Felix Baumgartner. Felix Baumgartner, yes, it's him. Yeah, so Felix, that was the largest um, media push that's ever been put into adventure sports in history. There was something like, I don't know, 20 million people or something watching it at the time, some really large number across the entire world. Um, but I was told this story about him because I was sitting down with a psychologist and the psychologist said, you know, what's your greatest fear? And a lot of people expect me to say ocean, animals, things that have to do with the environment. And my biggest fear is, was that I wouldn't have the ability to pull out like the emotional, the emotional intelligence when I got to a situation to say no, mm. because of all of these things that had been involved and then he told me the story about Felix, which was he's a very accomplished person. It's not just skydiving, base jumping, etc. He uh, is a mountaineer, a skier, and he apparently had been on an expedition and had a bunch of people and a bunch of involvement in getting up and skiing some line down a mountain. And he got up there, and his adrenaline was really high, and it was too high for him. Of course, there's always adrenaline involved. And he looked down, and he said, not today. And he walked away and he lost sponsors and other things happened. But um, that's a really powerful story. Oh, yeah. If you're thinking about your future, think about Fort Lewis College in Durango, Colorado. Think a beautiful mountain campus where hiking, biking, kayaking, and snow riding are right outside your door. Think a friendly community buzzing with music, arts, events, and sports. Think faculty mentors, real research, and professional experiences that prepare you to both make a living and make a life. If you think college should be an adventure, think Fort Lewis College. See for yourself at fortlewis.edu. For 20 years, Bent Gate Mountaineering has been outfitting climbers, skiers, backpackers, and outdoor enthusiasts with the gear they need. 
Whether climbing an 8,000-meter peak or buying your first backcountry ski setup, Bentgate is here to help. Bentgate is continuing to offer free BC 101 sessions this winter, teaching backcountry ski boot and binding setup, avi safety and beacon practice, clothing systems, and tips and tricks to make your days more enjoyable. If you don't own the gear, Bentgate offers a full range of rental and demo equipment. Bentgate also has free demo ski days at local resorts to give you a chance for hands-on experience. Be sure to check Bentgate.com for our full product selection as well as updates on all these events. I think a lot of mountaineers have a story of where they said, okay, not today, and people, other people on the mountain that day died or suffered, you know, severe tragedies. And it's really important to be able to make that decision, to make that call. And we say over and over again on the show here, you know, live to enjoy it another day. That's what it's about. Absolutely. And it's really interesting in this world of um, access to these stories and to what's happening that people have very different views about what's going on, right? So there's um, there are the accidents that happened most recently. I think two days ago there was a skydiving accident with a major sports athlete, Rohner. Eric Rohner, I think is his name. And um, friends of mine knew him very well. And you hear these stories of tragedy, and then there's a story of somebody backing down, and the general consensus is, why didn't they push harder? But then for the people that died doing it, it's why did they push so hard? So you're never going to make everyone happy with what you're doing, which is something you have to come to terms with in your own way. Sure. Yeah, you bet. Well, let's dive a little bit more into the sport of ocean rowing specifically. I think some of our listeners may not be that aware of what it is. I mean, a lot of people may see a picture of someone rowing in the ocean and they say, well, what's that? That's kind of the level of knowledge that most people have. So fill us in on the sport. This is very true. Um, ocean rowing started, there was shades of it starting almost a century ago. Um, the first major crossings that people talk about are in the 60s, 70s. And with those crossings, they're very basic um, in both their equipment and the methods of crossing. So they didn't have satellite phones, so they couldn't contact a weather router. They didn't have GPS, so they had to use a sextant to take sun and um, sun sightings and star sightings to figure out where they were in their crossing. Um, they didn't have water makers, which are desalinators that take saline water or salt water from the ocean and turn it into fresh water, so they had to bring all of their own fresh water with them. These are kind of the, if you want to have a comparison in mountaineering, the first people that climbed up Everest without oxygen sorts of people. From there, from these initial people that made the crossing happen, and they were all British, you now have this tiny new sport born that not a lot of people internationally have heard about until maybe the last couple of years to really picked up. It's something that people with no ocean experience have the possibility of being successful at, which is unique because you can't scale Everest and have no experience. And at the same time, it presents the opportunity for people to 
do different routes, different oceans. So there's Mid-Atlantic, North Atlantic. There is Indian Ocean. There is, um, let's see, North Pacific, Mid-Pacific, South Pacific crossings. And all of them come with a different variety of difficulties. So if you are somebody that does it the first time and says, this is this is part of who I am, this is what I have to keep doing, which I happen to be one of those few people, there are more opportunities and no ocean crossing is ever the same. So you only build on your knowledge. Um, so now kind of what the sport's turned into uh, is you have ocean rowing boats. I happen to have a business building these ocean rowing boats, which is a unique position to be in as well. And the first build we did was new boat. So I kind of took all this combined information I've had from my crossing and um, a few other people's crossings and put it into creating a new boat. Um, one that was purpose built to do a longer crossing. Um, the North Pacific could be up to six months in the few people that have completed it. So I needed something that could carry that much food. And that is dehydrated for the most part. You have some fresh food in case of emergency, which is canned. But on board, it's very technological now because of globalization. The water isn't necessarily just, um, you know, the way people think about it, shark and whale infested anymore. Now you've got shipping lanes that you're going in and major ports that you have to leave off the coast of. All of these things make it more difficult. So you have to let people know where you are and understand where everybody else is all at the same time. So you have all these devices on board to help you with that. So seamanship becomes a part of the equation, and a lot of times it's seamanship. I never – we had some basic classes, but nothing really prepares you for the equipment you might use. So something different that I used on my Pacific Crossing was um, an anemometer with an alarm, which is a device that measures wind speed. And for me, it was helpful, again, having never used this device before or knowing that I would really use it because – I hadn't been able to trial test my boat in really high wave and wind conditions. It's a hard thing to do. What do you say? I'm going to go 300 miles offshore and then come back in a rowboat. You usually just have to go and, and go for it. So I'm in this first condition and, and realize I can't put my parachute anchor, this thing that kind of holds me in place in high wave wind conditions, when it's below 15 knots of wind outside, but from 10 to 15 knots, it's kind of getting um, unmanageable if it's a headwind or a wind against my boat. So I have to set this alarm and kind of when I'm on my rest break, lay in front of it waiting for it to beep because as wind picks up, the wind starts going. It's not an immediate thing that all of a sudden it's gusting 25 or 30 knots. Um, it typically goes, okay, it's blowing consistently at 10. There's a gust of 17. Blowing consistently at 11. There's a gust of 18. So you until it's consistently gusting above 15 for me to be able to put these devices out that I need. And that's something that I use that alarm in. But this wouldn't have happened 40 or 50 years ago. So it's the expansion of the sport is creating more opportunity to do different things. And at the same time, it's maintaining the opportunity to do these routes in spite of the fact that the world's oceans are being taken over by um, corporations. So... Well, what does it feel like? What What is your daily routine like? Let's take your Atlantic crossing as an example. Um, what does it feel like to, to be out there for weeks on end, rowing and rowing and rowing? And how do you rest? And what are you eating? Uh, what What are the details? There's 
the physical and the emotional on the ocean. So the physical for the um, Atlantic was very different than the Pacific, solo versus with people. With people, you have a set schedule because everybody is invested in this thing. Everybody wants their rest time and their work time. So we were doing two hours on, two hours off of rowing and sleeping. Um, the sleeping time also involved the cleaning your body, fixing of anything that needed to be fixed, and preparing and eating your food before sleeping. So the sleep time actually ended up being something like an hour and a half to an hour and 15 minutes of rest. Um, and then you get back on the oars and that's 24 hours a day, unless there was some sort of, um, a large gale that came through and then we would take a break. Uh, but that only happened really once the entire crossing. So you have six shifts a day and the first 10 days are the most mentally and physically exhausting that you think that you're going to experience. And then there's kind of an uptick like, Oh, I've started to get used to this. And then your body starts failing if you're not taking care of it correctly, which those things drinking enough water kind of get pushed to the wayside because you just want to sleep so much. Um, so it's, uh, it's really interesting. And when we were, had been out for, I think it was six weeks, I texted, did somebody on the sat phone who had done it before and he said you know you're about 10 days out and these last 10 days are going to be the hardest 10 days and I thought how could they be even harder than the first 10 days but it really it's a complete roller coaster of emotion all the time and you can have one shift of rowing one two-hour period that is just fantastic and you're not even thinking about the time and all of a sudden it's over and you want to keep rowing because man, you're watching a meteor shower and how incredible could this be? Like you can see the full Milky Way. Um, And then the next shift, uh, everything on your body aches and you're watching the seconds tick by. Mm. So (laughs) it's, it's the the strangest thing you'll ever do. Um, And it's one of the most rewarding things that you will ever do um, in my opinion. So, Sonia, I just got to know, how fast can you row one of these boats? It uh, totally depends on condition and how loaded your boat is. So let's say that you just got your brand new boat and you've got no weight in it and you take it out and you've got a light tailwind. You could go eight knots in this boat, maybe 10 if there's big waves. Um, It's less safe because you don't have any weight in it and you need that kind of um, centering balance called ballast to make sure that your boat doesn't flip over. Um, but if you're at the beginning of an expedition and you're fully loaded with a thousand pounds of gear, you're lucky if you go two knots. Um, and that's just kind of the way that it is. But if you have a 25 knot wind coming off the stern and waves following wind, because wind doesn't always go the same direction as waves. Um, and the waves are large enough, you cruise and you surf down the front of waves and you can get up to pretty fast speeds. You can also go incredibly slow. So you kind of just turn off anything that shows you how fast you're going and row. <laughs> so you just row and row and you don't want to know. <laughs> yeah, you kind of look at the end of the day impact and you set the time every day and maybe even a half point to see how many miles you traveled that day. So anything above 50 miles is a great day. Wow. So if you end up with a headwind, you could easily lose ground. You throw out a sea anchor and just kind of hang out. What do you do? Yeah, it kind of depends on how fast the headwind is. It depends on 
if you're in a current and the wind is below a certain amount, so with that Pacific crossing, the current would go three knots in some places, and it was a larger, more impactful force than the wind was at that point. So you just kind of stay in the current. Fascinating. So crossing the ocean at like one to two knots, potentially. Yep. (laughs) Wow. Arrested time. Yeah, that's crazy. Well, tell us a little bit about that. Why would you encourage people to give it a shot if they have an interest in, in rowing and they'd like to do something epic like this? Why do it? Why do it? In taking on something like ocean rowing, everybody thinks of the actual journey as the most difficult part, the most emotionally involved. And what you discover is getting to the starting line is 80% of it. Um, Being able to raise the funds and get a boat together because it's not just you physically prepared. It's being um, having the knowledge of what you're about to do and the devices on board. And it's pretty involved. It takes time. And not everybody gets that time. So there's a modicum of luck involved. But the reason to do it is you learn more about yourself in this situation than I think personally um, you learn in doing anything else on land because there's more of an out on land. And this isn't to do with extreme mountaineering, let me um, say. This is something when you're a month into the middle of the ocean, your option is, a possible rescue, and you've lost the boat that you've put so much time and energy into. So it really doesn't become an option. It's extremely dangerous to have a rescue in the middle of the ocean, too. So when you leave shore, you're in it, and for better or for worse. So having that knowledge going into it and that you have to emotionally work through who you are as a person, who these other people are, how you deal with um, both reward, regret, and small tragedies that could all happen within an hour period will affect you for the rest of your life. So it's challenges that you can't expect or plan for. And I think that that, there's something really beautiful about it. You know, in my ignorance, having never done anything like this, I I kind of envision, you know, sunny skies, crystal clear blue water, nice rolling waves, getting some exercise and breathing a lot of fresh air and maybe having some interesting experiences here and there. Um, and then there is a lot of work. But what you're pointing out to us is that there's just a, a whole kind of cognitive challenge involved. There's the emotional side of it and the, the fear factor, I guess. Once you're committed, you're committed. Yeah. And it's there are those beautiful days where everything lines up, full moon or a nice like overcast sky so it's not incredibly hot and you're cruising and it's perfect. But you have to get through a whole lot of other stuff to get to those parts that are perfect and to really have the appreciation for those parts. Um, it's really hard to fully appreciate something that seems so basic until you've been completely stripped down. And that's kind of what ocean rowing does. And it's not I'm not saying this to scare people. I'm saying it because it's the most unique thing about it is you are you become a very base functioning person. It's the bottom four, you know, shelter, food, and um, security. And after you meet those, you can appreciate the other things that are involved in this, which is one of the things most people talk about that have done an ocean row, this incredible night sky. So, yeah. Wow. You know, Robin Benincasa was on the show recently, 
and she does the the full length adventure races like the Eco Challenge and that sort of thing. That that was her past, and now she's a rower too. Um, but Robin pointed out that it's almost a spiritual experience when you are trying to accomplish something that really challenges the body for an extended period of time, for day after day after day, that you you find a part of yourself you didn't know existed and have an experience that you just couldn't have otherwise. I'm not sure that many of us can relate to that. I think that I think it's tricky for someone to listen to a podcast like this and say, wow, I could never have that experience because I think it's a total it's attainable in smaller ways. And it's just what you do to push yourself. Obviously anybody that can um, do an ocean row, I would definitely say do an ocean row with encouragement and support from the people around you. But you can achieve that sense of accomplishment in doing smaller things every day. I mean, you've never done an overnight, you go for a weekend backcountry camping there's going to be hardships involved with that that you haven't experienced before. So everything is building blocks and stepping stones to having that experience. It may not be a multi-day experience um, over two months of being in this extreme environment, but uh, it's a little piece of it, and it honestly probably mimics maybe a three-day period of that where you've taken things away that you're very used to having, and you replace them with things that aren't the same, but lead you to these amazing experiences that you would never otherwise have. So I'm glad you're here to tell us about it (laughs) and let us know that that exists out there. It might be something that our listeners will say, you know what, I've got to do something like this. Now's the time I'm going to figure it out. And your story is encouraging that way. So if you're solo rowing, now you were talking about a team row, you know, two hours on, two hours off. But if you're going solo on some of these crossings, then what's your schedule look like? It totally depends on the day, and it's also keeping yourself on a schedule because now you're alone. So it depends on the kind of person you are and what you want to do. So depending on the day, when I did this, unfortunately, very short beginning of a crossing, it ended up being that I really preferred rowing five to six hours in the morning. It was really nice. I'd wake up at sunrise at at 4 a.m., and I'd uh, row that shift. I'd take the hotter hours off from 11 to 2 p.m. And then I'd start a late evening row of five to six hours again and sleep mostly at night. Um, In the first four days, it ended up being that there wasn't much sleep because in being solo, you don't have somebody always on watch. And by on watch, I mean somebody that's awake and aware and looking around for lights on the horizon in the form of boats. Um, So... I had to be very cognizant of boat traffic, which was a learning experience in itself. <laughs> yeah, I can't way. imagine. Um, do you have a, some sort of a radar device that can alarm you if something is approaching? You do. The tricky thing is is you set it for a um, circumference around your boat, basically. It's called an AIS, and there's an alarm that go goes with it. And what it does is any boat with an AIS – it picks up. So you set it for a a location. So if you want to say you want to know within a five mile distance, which is probably if they're going 15 to 20 knots, um, it would give you 20 minutes of warning to do something. The problem is, is when you're densely populated area with boats waiting to go in and out of port, which um, Japan has four of the top 10 largest ports in the world, 
So leaving that coast becomes very tricky, and it's compounded by the fact that almost none of the fishing vessels have AIS. But they're saner-sized fishing boats, and when I say that, I mean a 60-foot to 80-foot aluminum vessel that goes pretty fast. So you're basically at a risk the entire time, even with your AIS on and you're listening for the alarm to sound um, because there's 50 boats within a half a mile of you at the same time. So The interstate of ocean crossings. Yeah. (laughs) And you can plan as much as you want for that, but until you experience it, it is uh, entirely different. The 180 Flame is the ideal alternative to bulky and fragile gas-burning camp stoves. The 180 Flame utilizes fewer parts with minimal weight and maximized reliability. The locking tab and slot design means there are no hinges, welds, or rivets to fill you in the field. Cook your food and boil water quickly using only small amounts of natural fuels including twigs, grass, pine cones, and leaves. Weighing just 6.4 ounces, the 180 Flame is the ideal alternative to a backpacking stove. You can find your new flame at 180tac.com or a retailer near you. 180 Flame. Think big, pack small. It's Tim Emmett. I'm a professional climber and wingsuit pilot. I really enjoy public speaking, and I've spoken at schools, events, and businesses all over the world. I believe that you can change the way you feel by changing what you think about and using lessons learned from a world in extreme sports. If you're looking for someone lively to brighten up your event, and maybe expand your concept of possibility, send me an email to tim at timemmet.com. That's T-I-M at T-I-M-E-M-M-E-T-T dot C-O-M. Thanks a lot. So fill us in on a little bit of the strategy. Obviously, you would want to do a crossing where the ocean currents are going to be in your favor and hopefully where the weather might be in your favor too. But I would assume that these are the shipping channels that are also being used. You assumed right. Um, Every ocean crossing is typically the way that any large vessel would cross because it's the path of least resistance. Um, When you get into northern oceans, you're much more dependent on current rather than um, weather conditions because those weather conditions are much more inconsistent than trade routes is what they're called trade wind routes. So mid Atlantic is a trade wind route and the mid Pacific is a trade wind route. So once you get offshore from California, about 200 miles, you have direct winds that kind of draw you directly to um, Hawaii if you're angling the right way. And then from there down to Australia. So um, in doing a Northern ocean crossing, you're taking on a bear of a challenge. 
So I can't imagine what it's like to be solo and trying to sleep and not knowing if a super tanker is getting ready to just buckle right through the middle of your boat. Well, I learned a lot about myself, <laughs> even in that um, short kind of eight-day period. I never expected myself to be able to handle, and I shouldn't say that, you, a lot of the reality of expeditions are having the confidence to know that you can react well. So explorers have to be confident, and a lot of people look at them as being overconfident or arrogant, but it's a part of the psychology of it. If you doubt yourself from the very beginning, you're really not going to have a chance of completing it. Um, There was a study that I read recently online that basically said the top athletes are those that lie to themselves. And they, the psychologist used a basic questions that said, um, do you do this, 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 and this? And um, I think there was five questions about how they function as a person that had nothing to do with sport. And what they found is uh, people who were depressed were very honest about those things and answered in the expected manner. Um, and people who weren't honest about those things ended up being top athletes because they had the ability to push out any doubt, (laughs) which is a really weird thing. Like you lie to yourself and as long as you can lie to yourself really well, then you can complete this. Um, And that's part of the challenge of getting out and saying, can I do this? Can I function this way? So you have to not really think about those things and replace them with all the knowledge that you can and all the training that you can beforehand. Um, It's almost like a super optimism that's required. Hyper optimism. Hyper optimism. You know, I I can relate to that from my days rock climbing. I would have days where the thought of the fall, I could I could just push it out of my mind. It's like, oh no, that doesn't exist. It's just me and the rock and the sun and the the wind and you know the beauty of the sport. And then other days, the fall was real to me, and I couldn't I couldn't suppress it anymore. And those are the days that I'd say, you know what, I'm not going to (laughs) climb. It just doesn't work for me today. Yeah, absolutely. Both days are the same as far as the risk involved, right? But it's the ability to say, I'm not going to worry about the what if, I'm going to focus on the what I'm doing. And uh, maybe that's what we're talking about. It is exactly what we're talking about, I think. And it's the way that you respond to a situation that you've trained for. Like, instead of saying, can I do this when the situation happens, you run quickly through your steps, you check off what you can, um, What's not possible, you don't do, and you evaluate your options in a, in a moment. Um, so there happened to be one day that I woke up at 3.30 a.m. I was a day and a half out, and I had gotten maybe two hours of sleep, three hours of sleep. I was still really close to the shore. It's hard to break off um, of shore when it's a major uh, landmass. Because you've got local currents, local waves, local weather conditions that are different once you get 100 miles offshore on top of the boat traffic. So you're trying to break away from land in this boat that's completely self-powered and dependent on wind to blow you off land to an extent. Um, And you've got headwinds and crosswinds and weather happening that um, if you could just get a bit further, wouldn't be happening. Mm. So I happened to wake up at this time. My AIS wasn't sounding. That's the device that... Um, tells me when ships are around me and also tells those ships that I'm there. And I hear this sound, I'm rowing, and mind you, when you're rowing, you're not facing the direction that you're going toward. So my back is towards um, the actual way that I'm moving. And I'm hearing this, 
And I decide to stand up and look around, and now there's a 60-foot saner coming at me going like 25 knots, something pretty fast. And oh, it's wow. not it's not just going beside me. It's heading directly towards me. I, Of course, your immediate reaction as a human being is to start jumping and screaming and signal them. But then after that kind of ebbs, after like 15 or 20 seconds, and you're like, obviously, they're not going to hear me, you've got basically three options, which in rapid succession I evaluated. One – you jump from the boat because you want to get as far away and swim as far away as you can so you're not pounded by this vessel. Two, so immediately I unclip um, from my lifeline, which is something that holds me onto the boat in case I need to jump because I'm thinking that that's what's going to happen. And the boat's about a minute away at this point. They're not seeing me. I can reach in, grab my VHF radio, try to radio them, but I'm in Japan. Nobody speaks English at all. Oh, they don't – I don't know the name of the boat. It's too close for me to go into my cabin and look at my my AIS, my GPS screen, and see what the boat's name could be to radio them specifically. By the time I radio Japanese Coast Guard and try to make them understand what I'm saying, the boat is going to hit me. So immediately it's either jump from the boat, use a flare, and then jump from the boat. So without thinking, which is one of my proudest moments in my life because I, I never thought I'd have the capacity to do this. Um, you never think you're going to be in this situation until it's there. Um, I had one backup flare that was stuck with a bungee on the inside of my cabin. Without looking, I grabbed the flare. I light it as fast as I can. Having not lit a flare off in maybe three years, um, it's just not something you usually practice. Well, sometimes you do, but um, there's writing on the flare that tells you how to use it, but I generally knew how to use the flares that were the brand I chose. I light it, hold it as high as I can in the air. It's just a red hand flare. And then the boat sees me. And it turns at the oh. last possible second. <laughs> and when I say last possible second, I mean spray is coming off the boat onto me. Yeah, I know. It's a cliffhanger. What happens next? Of course, you survived to tell the tale, but... Join in in the next episode to find out more crazy information about how Sonia Baumstein survives not only this encounter, but several others, and she shares with us the ins and the outs of ocean rowing. Thank you so much for listening today, and as always, until next time, get out there and have some fun. Hey, the number one thing that you can do to help the Adventure Sports Podcast is to share it with your friends. Please, let them all know. Give a listen. Catch you later. <laughs>